All right, we're going to go ahead and, whoa, it's a little, a little hot there. Can you hear me? We're going to go ahead and get started. Um, so we're continuing this morning in our uh, systematic theology study. This would be part three of our look at the doctrine of anthropology, um, what the Bible has to say about man and about his nature and relationship to God. So this morning, we're going to be delving into into, uh, the doctrine of sin, um, or hamartiology, from the Greek word hamartia, meaning to miss the mark. Um, So this is our subject this morning. Um, The the doctrinal statement um, of Redemption Hill reads, We believe that mankind was directly and immediately created by God in his image, free of sin and therefore able to glorify God, enjoy his fellowship, and accomplish his purpose in the world. However, through disobedience to the revealed will of God, the first man, Adam, incurred the penalty of spiritual and physical death and became subject to the wrath of God. We believe that Adam's sin is transmitted to all men of all ages, rendering all people guilty and hopelessly lost. So before we jump into our our study this morning, let's pray together and ask God's blessing on our time in the Word. Heavenly Father, um, God, we we come before you um, on no other merit than that of the, the precious and holy blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we claim the promise, um, Lord, that uh, your spirit is the comforter who leads us into all wisdom. We ask that you would open your word to us this morning, um, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. And God, I pray that even in the midst of this weighty um, and at times difficult subject, you would um, open our eyes to give us understanding and allow this truth to bear fruit uh, in our church in this body. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, uh, the scope of our study this morning, and I'm secretly glad that, that the technology has failed us this morning because um, next to Scott Huffman's PowerPoint presentation, mine is like a Crayola drawing. So we'll just leave that where it is. Um, the scope of our study this morning is to look at um, a biblical definition for sin, uh, then as well to look at the origin of sin through the story of man's fall in the garden, and then thirdly, to consider the effects of the fall. So you may say this morning, why is it important that we study this doctrine of sin? Do we really need to think about this? Wouldn't it be nicer if we could just sort of ignore it? And in thinking that, you would be Um, like many churches in America today, it is an uncomfortable topic. Our society is uncomfortable with it. It is the most inconvenient truth that there is a divine standard, a moral law that we are obligated to obey and a God that we are accountable to. So why do we study it? Um, And to illustrate this, I think I've been thinking about um, throughout history how all of the the major 
disasters that we have seen um, from the sinking of the Titanic to Chernobyl to the Challenger space shuttle, um, all of these things have one thing in common. They came about as a result of a failure to identify and to acknowledge what was the fatal flaw in the system. And in every one of these instances, because that fatal flaw wasn't identified and wasn't acknowledged, then no remedy was sought for it, and disaster was the inevitable result. Mankind, the scripture tells us, is fatally flawed. Mankind has the problem of sin. And eternal death, separation from God, is that great looming disaster which waits for all of those who fail to acknowledge and to seek out sin's only remedy, the blood of Jesus Christ. So this is why it is so vitally important that we understand and affirm and uphold what the Bible has to say about sin. Because if I don't know that I'm sick, I won't seek a doctor. If I'm not aware that I'm broken, then I don't need to be fixed. And if I don't see that I am a sinner, I don't need a Savior, and I cannot be saved. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he did not say this to mean that there are any who are righteous, but that only those who will acknowledge their own sinfulness does he call. So, first of all, we are going to look at a biblical working definition for sin. Um, And the first place I I want us to look is at some of the words that are used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, Hebrew and Greek words that describe sin. So, in the Old Testament, we have three main words that are used. Uh, The first is, and I'm going to butcher these pronunciations, so I'll have to to get with uh, J.D. afterwards to find out how these are supposed to be said, but... Uh, kata, which means to miss the mark or to miss the way. Um, the second word that you see in the Old Testament is pasha. This is another Hebrew word um, which means to rebel, to trespass, or to betray. Um, we see this word used in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, where God says, but they have rebelled, pasha, against me. Third, uh, in the Old Testament, we have the word abar, which means to, to go over, to cross a line, to trespass. In Judges uh, chapter 2 and verse 20, we read, This people have transgressed abar, my covenant, that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. Now, in the New Testament, we have... Um, even more words used to describe uh, sin. Um, the first is adikia, meaning unrighteousness or injustice. Um, and we see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, where it says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Um, second, we have the word planao, which means to wander or to stray. Um, apetheo uh, is used in the New Testament, meaning disobedience or willful, obstinate uh, 
action against God's will. We also have uh, asabeya, meaning ungodliness or wickedness. Agnoia means ignorance or lack of understanding. And parabasis, meaning a breaking of or a deviation from God's law. Um, and then finally, we have the word um, hamartano, which is actually a really close counterpart to that Old Testament word of kata. This also means to miss the mark, to err, or to be mistaken. So the diversity of words and ideas that are used throughout Scripture to speak of sin really show us that there are many ways in which sin is wrong. It is a complex problem with uh, certain variable aspects, but the common denominator, what makes sin sin, is its adversarial relationship to the eternal constant of God's moral law. So our study together of sin would be uh, insufficient, it would be incomplete, without a clear understanding of the reality of God's moral law that sin is in opposition to, and man's obligation to keep it. So as creator, God gets to set the rules for his creation. And it is this uh, fundamental creature-creator relationship that sin is in violation of. According to J.I. Packer, Man was not created to be autonomous, free to be a law to himself, but theonomous, that is, bound to keep the law of his maker. So the law of God is his moral law, and it is set forth in the Ten Commandments, in the Mosaic statutes, uh, throughout the prophets' sermons, um, in Jesus' teachings especially, and in the epistles of the New Testament. Jesus also said that this moral law of God can be summed up in these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is, this is the standard. This is God's moral law uh, set forth in the scriptures and written, we're told, on men's hearts that they suppress, that their sin is in opposition to. The Apostle John sums uh, this up so very succinctly in, uh, in 1 John when he says, Sin is lawlessness. So to understand sin, to define sin, we have to keep this dichotomy in view between sin and the law. See, the law of the Lord is perfect. And sin misses the mark of his perfect standard. God's law is righteous, and it is just authority, and sin rebels against that authority. God's law is pure. Sin is corruption. God's law gives life. Sin brings death. So now with all of this in place, I think we can provide a good working definition, and I take this from, uh, from Wayne Grudem, He says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, 
or nature. This definition is, is really important for us, I think, because it reveals the, the depth and the magnitude of our sin problem. See, the fatal flaw of mankind is systemic. It goes beyond outward action and whether or not someone can keep a list of do's and don'ts um, to even deeper levels. So while it is true that God's law deals with our actions, uh, it is also true that God's law is in force at the level of men's hearts and minds, our attitudes. So this means that we can break God's law, not only by what we do, but by what we think and by what we desire. So we see evidence of this, these, these heart sins, these attitude sins um, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 in the Ten Commandments, where we're told, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We see it also in Jesus' warnings in his Sermon on the Mount when he uh, teaches against anger and against lust. But not only is God's law enforced over men's actions and their attitudes, it is also in force over their natures. Fallen man violates God's law at the very core of who he is. Man's nature is sinful. So now we can fully appreciate with this de definition in place the enormity of the problem of man's sin. It is total. It dominates and permeates every aspect of life for the unsaved. Job chapter 15 and verse 16 says, How much more abominable and filthy is man, which drinketh iniquity like water. So we see the problem, and the question becomes, how did this happen? How did we get here? And this is when we, we go back to Genesis and look at the story of the fall. So the Bible lays the blame and responsibility for sin and death that we see in the world squarely at the feet of one man, the first man, Adam. In Genesis in chapter 3, we read how by Adam's deliberate choice to act in opposition to God's revealed will, sin came into the world. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, it says, God get, or, sorry, rather, God says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So he, he had given this clear command. His, his will is revealed um, for Adam and his wife Eve to keep. And in chapter 3, we see how Adam's wife, Eve is tempted to break God's law by a serpent. And the scriptures teach us uh, the serpent or the, the power behind the serpent was actually the fallen angel Lucifer, um, known as Satan, or a word that means adversary. So the serpent cast doubt in Eve's mind about the goodness of God's commandment about the goodness of God. And he deceived her with the lie that eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil would make her like God. So she ate. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we read, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also 
desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. One of the key distinctions between Adam's sin and Eve's, according to the scriptures, as we read this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, is that while Eve was deceived, Adam was not, and yet he obeyed, or he disobeyed anyway. And it is through his willful choice to disobey God and to rule his own life, Adam plunged the world and all of his descendants into the darkness of sin. Now, this is important for us to, to understand kind of the nature of sin and what is at its, at its core. We said earlier that sin is, is complex and that it is manifested in many different ways, which is true. But in another sense, sin is simple in that it all germinates from this same seed of man's desire for autonomy to rule his or her own life in the place of God. So this first sin, this original sin, is essentially the template for countless millions, trillions sins that would follow it. Now this brings us to the question, um, having looked at, at the story of the fall, what were its consequences? What are the repercussions and the effects of Adam's sin? And how does it affect us? So looking at the effects of the fall um, and this question of, of how Adam's sin, um, how it has affected all of his descendants, what are its consequences? Theologians refer to this study, to this question, as the doctrine of original sin. It refers to the sinful state of all people because of their relationship to Adam. And it identifies the transmission of sin through Adam as the source of mankind's depravity and the reason that natural man is, is tainted with sin from conception. So there have been several different theories posed about this connection that we have to Adam's sin. Um, but the position that would be taught by Redemption Hill uh, and most commonly held by Reformed theology and also, I believe, the most thoroughly biblical view is that of representative headship. So this describes the relationship of Adam's descendants to his sin. And within this doctrine, we have some very, very bad news and some very good news. The doctrine of representative headship, sometimes referred to as federal headship, teaches that God made Adam to stand as representative for all the human race, for all of his descendants, and as such, his sin is imputed to all of his descendants. This means that Adam's guilt is our guilt. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world, and death through sin, and so death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans chapter 5 and verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So, what we learn from these verses is that all people are condemned because of their direct relationship 
to Adam. That when he sinned, God thought of us all as having sinned also. So that is the bad news. The good news is it is by this same means of the doctrine of representative headship that Jesus could stand in our place as the sinless representative of those who would believe so that he could make atonement for his people and have his alien righteousness imputed to us by grace through faith. So this is the, the Adam-Christ parallel that we see um, so beautifully laid out in the book of Romans, especially Romans chapter, chapter 5, um, the representative headship. John MacArthur writes of this doctrine, in sum, both men, Adam and Christ, are seen as representatives of humanity. And for both, the effects of their actions are placed on others. So, um, what are some other consequences that we see in Scripture? What are some other effects of the fall? Uh, Secondly, we see, because of Adam's sin, we have an inherited sin nature. So the self-worshipping attitude that Adam demonstrated when he took the fruit and when he ate, that became a part of him. It became his moral nature, and it is the moral nature that he would pass down to all of his descendants. That inherited sin nature that we have as Adam's descendants is often termed um, original pollution or original corruption. So the doctrine of original corruption teaches that the natural man, by the transmission of Adam's sin nature, is sinful at the very core of his being. And that the image of God, which man reflected perfectly when, he, when God first created him, although not lost, is now marred and distorted by sin. Psalm 14, verse 3 reads, They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. And there is none who does good. The doctrine of original corruption also teaches that our sin nature is from the womb, that is, um, from the moment of conception. Psalm 51, verse 5 reads, and this is David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Wayne Grudem writes of this doctrine. This, this speaks to the inherent tendency to sin that attaches to our lives from the very beginning. So kind of within this overarching doctrine of original corruption is another doctrine that goes deeper into understanding um, our inherited sin nature, and that is the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity teaches us about the utter pervasiveness of sin, and there are kind of three main points. Firstly, that there is no part of our humanness that is not tainted by sin. Um, A few weeks back, one of my uh, co-workers had his his daughter's house catch on fire, or um, there was a a fire in an adjacent barn that spread to the house, and and it it only really burned down one corner of his daughter's home in in her kitchen. But the really devastating thing is that because the fire was there in the kitchen, 
the smoke damage from that, uh, it permeated throughout the entire house. And every article of, of clothing, every piece of furniture, every surface is absolutely permeated with that smoke. It was destroyed. And sin uh, is, uh, in this doctrine of total depravity like that, it taints, it corrupts every aspect of man. Um, the doctrine of total depravity also teaches that we, as uh, in our fallen state, are incapable of pleasing God. Uh, it also teaches uh, the universe, universality of the pervasiveness of sin, that all men are born as sinners. Um, total depravity all does not mean that all who are unsaved will always act to the fullest potential of their sinfulness. Uh, it also does not mean that unsaved, unsaved people are incapable of doing relative acts of good. They are by human standards, but it does mean that apart from the redeeming work of Christ, no part of us, neither body or soul or intellect, can escape the corrupting power of sin. Total depravity emphasizes as well um, what many scripture passages attest to, and that is that the spiritual part of man, his soul, is wholly and completely and utterly corrupted. Titus chapter 1 and verse 15 reads, to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The doctrine of total depravity, total depravity teaches us also that man's spiritual state is not one of neutrality where he could choose to either um, accept or reject the gospel. Man is by nature an active hater of God, who apart from the drawing work of God's spirit, would never come to him. Romans in chapter 8 verse 7 reads, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So all of these consequences of original sin that we have looked at, and there are many more that we could go into can be summed up in this final effect, this final consequence. And it, that is death. God told Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death is the penalty for sin. The wages of disobedience that we earn, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And the death that is earned by sin is threefold. We see in the scriptures a spiritual death, a physical death, and an eternal death. So spiritual death speaks of a state of spiritual alienation from God. 
So when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they did not physically die immediately. They lived on for many years after that, but their spiritual death was instantaneous. The moment that they bit the fruit, they were spiritually estranged from God. And that gulf, that infinite gulf between fallen man and a holy God has remained. So we are, as Adam's descendants, born into that spiritual death. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 tells, tells us that before regeneration, before salvation, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This spiritual deadness means that we are incapable of responding to spiritual truth. This means that the natural man being dead in his sins um, is unable to respond to spiritual truth and to be saved through repentance and faith. And this speaks to the necessity of God's initiative in regenerating man so that he can respond. Um, so secondly, we, we talked about uh, the aspect of physical death as a consequence of sin. And I think we understand this pretty well, but while Adam and Eve didn't die immediately in the moment that they disobeyed, they began immediately to die. And uh, the genealogy that follows that story just drives home over and over and over what would be uh, the norm throughout all of human history. We read, uh, and Seth lived so many days, and he died. And Enoch lived so many, or sorry, Enoch didn't die. Um, <laughs> but all the other ones did. Um, but physical death is the consequence of Adam's sin. And now under the power of death, Adam and all of his descendants would return to the dust from which he was made. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And thirdly, um, we see as a consequence for Adam's sin, eternal death. So for those who physically die, while also spiritually dead and estranged from God. There awaits what John refers to in Revelations chapter 20 as the second death, an eternal separation from God and punishment in the lake of fire. So we said at the beginning that a right biblical doctrine, a right biblical understanding of sin was important so that the problem of sin could be exposed and it is very difficult to stare this truth in the face but it is good both for the unsaved and for the saved to do this for the unsaved person who is still in their sins and there may be somebody here this morning this is important so that they may recognize the true hopelessness of their condition and how desperately in need of a Savior, he or she is, so that they may turn to Christ. And to those of us who are born again, who are no longer in Adam, but are in Christ, this is also important because it provides us with a 
perspective on what we have been saved from. And it ought to deepen our appreciation for the wondrous gift that we are given through the incredible mystery of the gospel. As we think about our sinfulness and the, the, the fatal flaw that we inherited that was transmitted to us through Adam, we can rejoice as we meditate on what Christ has done for us, how the curse of sin that was upon us, Jesus took on himself. How the wrath of God against our sin that should have been upon us was poured out on him. He bore himself. How that where Adam failed to keep God's law and gave us death, Jesus succeeded, took our death, and gives us his life. And that even though we as Christians still deal with the ingrained sin habits of the old man, there is a day coming when this mortal flesh will put on immortality and sin will be no more and we will be like him. For our sake, he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To close, I wanted to read this line from the hymn writer. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? All right, we're, we're done a little bit early. You're dismissed, and we'll see you back here for the worship service.